welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Thank you for standing in the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning as we continue through the Epistle to the Colossians. We're going to finish the section that we've been in for a couple weeks now that stretches from Colossians 1, 19 through verse 23. So again, as we move through this marvelous sweep of searching Scripture, let us hear together the Word of God. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him... To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the holy word of God. May the Holy Spirit of God come over his text for his people today. Amen and amen. As you're seated, our kids can be dismissed for Children's Church. That's kindergarten through fifth grade. Again, thank you so much for standing in the honor of the reading of such a marvelous text of Scripture. It's a rich section that uncovers a rich doctrine that is part of our whole Christian identity, but not deeply understood by many believers, unfortunately. Uh, Many churches just don't go into the depth of it, but we're going to do that because the Word of God does that. Last time we began to talk about this great doctrine of reconciliation. And I told you we're going to handle it in two parts. Last time we looked at verses 19 and 20 and we focused just on the concept of how we are reconciled to God. And I went into the doctrine itself. And then I said this week we're going to sweep through the remaining verses, particularly 21 to 23, which give us the, uh, the depth of this great doctrine. And so we're going to take a look at the rich reality of reconciliation. It's so beautiful. It is uh, eye-opening in regard to how deep our sin is, heart-filling in terms of how deep God's rescue was, and it's comfort-giving in terms of our future in heaven. The Bible does say that we have been reconciled, that Christ reconciled to himself all things in the sense that uh, there was a great purpose that God had. Verses 19 and 20 told the story. A world that had set itself at enmity with God a world full of people who were enemies of God, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 10, was not left in its rebellion, but God created a rescue plan, a way to reconcile those who were his enemies to himself. He did this even though they had turned their back on him and they had lived and were living in sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
We have turned to our sin. We love our sin. We had no interest in returning to God or even considering him. The Bible says people were content to do nothing, but God wasn't content. Amen. So he had a purpose. Verse 19 said he sent his son in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus Christ, eternal God, also took on the fullness of human identity. Fully God became also fully and perfect man. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in his earthly mission to the planet, verse 20 says, he went to a cross, he bled on that cross, he died on that cross, and so peace was offered now to the entire world. So God had a purpose in sending his son. He came and paid the deepest price imaginable, the blood of his son and the sacrifice of his son. So that there is now a great possibility for the human race. I told you last time that verses 19 and 20 mean that when Jesus died and rose again, the world became savable in the sense that enemies of God now had a way to turn back to him. This is a marvelous, marvelous offer that God makes to the world. One author I read this week put it this way. The glorious good news of the gospel is that the sin-devastated relationship between lost sinners and a holy God can be restored. That at first glance, it seemed impossible. God's perfect, infinite, righteous justice demands the punishment of all who violate his law. Standing in the courtroom of his justice are helpless, guilty sinners, unable either to satisfy God or to change their condition. But through God's plan of reconciliation, all the hostility, all the animosity, and all the alienation separating the Holy One and sinners vanishes away, and those who were once his enemies become his friends. What a beautiful doctrine it is. Today, we're going to look into the depths of verses 21 and 23, which talk about the believer's experience. Verses 19 and 20 talk about what Jesus did and what God offers to a lost world. It's sufficient to reconcile them to himself, but it, not, it is not a sufficient to save. People must turn and be reconciled. They must turn and desire to make peace by the blood of his cross. They, wanna, they must turn rather and receive the peace that God has offered so the world stands outside and ponders this offer. But verses 21 to 23 shift their focus. He shifts from the lost world in verses 19 and 20 to believers. You notice the phrase that begins verse 21, and you. Now he's talking to Christians. And he takes this doctrine and he goes into the depths of it to show us just how wonderful it is that we are reconciled. He shifts now to the Christian and you believers in Colossae who once were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. Amen. That's where we are today. And so he, he moves into some rich realities of reconciliation, and I want to teach those to you. There are five rich realities that stretch their way through this short passage of Scripture. Here's the first one. Paul here teaches these believers that reconciliation was offered to alienated, hostile, and evil people, you and I as believers. We're Christians now, but who we were when God reconciled us, oh, that's a different story. And he, he writes this sweep of, of scripture here to remind them 
and to cause them to remember just how much in rebellion and darkness they were before Christ rescued them. And then he writes it at the end in verse 23 to remind them to continue and resolve to walk with the God who rescued them. So here in the first part, he reminds them that they were just as alienated and just as hostile and just as evil as anyone in the world around them. In fact, they were in a triple dose of trouble. Take a look at it. Three deep words or phrases, alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. That's where you and I were prior to meeting Christ. Let me go through each of these because we need to remember the weight of who we were and what God set aside through the death of Christ for us. First, the word alienated. Interesting. The word alienated, it, uh, it talks about the fact that human beings outside of Jesus Christ then and now don't just have a problem of not knowing about God. We touched on this last week. People don't just need to know about God. The problem is not spiritual ignorance in our lost world. In fact, the Bible says it's exactly the opposite. Every human being does know about God. Every human being is fully aware of God. No human being in the core of their, their, their identity, listen to this, is truly an atheist. Not one. Not one. The evidence is overwhelming. People do know about God, but they don't want to have anything to do with God. How do I know this? Go in your Bibles to Romans 1. I've read this to you a lot, but it's a fundamental doctrine about the nature of people and the nature of man. And if you don't understand Romans 1, you'll never appreciate the gospel. Romans 1.19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. He's talking about all people in verse 18 who live in ungodliness and unrighteousness and suppress the truth. What truth are they suppressing? The truth that God exists. How do they know that God exists, but they suppress it? Because God has given evidence all around us. It's called creation. For what can be known about God is plain to them. In other words, no excuse to declare there is no God. No possibility of being truly atheistic. Because what, for what God can, can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. There's the evidence, who they are as created beings, what they live in and see in a created universe. All of that declares the existence of a mighty and holy and good and supreme God. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, look at this, so they are without excuse. That's the practical statement of the word of God. We all have compelling evidence that forces us to admit there must be a God. There must be a God. For although they knew God, look what people do with that evidence. They did not honor him as God. People know about God. They just don't want to have anything to do with him or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
exchange the chance to know him and worship and honor him in their lives for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, people know that there is a God. They refuse to acknowledge him. They refuse to honor him. They refuse to submit their lives to him. They refuse to thank him. And in fact, they exclude him from the realm of their understanding of life. And they cause all of their life and their thinking to revolve around themselves. They exchange his glory for their glory. That's the essence of human sin. It started in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve bought the lie. It continues in the bloodstream of humanity to this day. So we are alienated, the Bible says. We're so committed to our own glory and our own kingdom that we now not only don't want to come close to God when we're lost, we view God as an enemy. Webster defines the word alienated, uh, or alienate rather, to make unfriendly, hostile, or indifferent, especially where an attachment formally existed. It's to become alienated. We knew him in the very beginning of human experience in the garden, but when sin fell after man decided, then all of us since then have joined our original parents in viewing God with hostility and indifference also says here that it's in the perfect tense in the Greek. It means that when when he says that you were alienated from God, you were born into that and you lived into that. That is a supremely difficult environment to be in, but that's what it's like to be without Christ. He says, that's what you were. Don't forget it. Then he goes to the second word back to our text here. And he talks about the fact that not only were you and I alienated, we were also hostile. This is how alienation lives itself out. This amplifies our alienation. What does it mean to be hostile? Well, the Greek word hostile here is ekthros, and it meant hatred. Wow, that steps it up a notch. We watch people around us that don't know God in a personal way through Christ, and they seem uh, to be ambling through life in a rather pleasant manner. And yet the Bible says in the fundamental nature of who they are and how they choose to look at life and look at God, hatred is growing in their hearts toward God. That's what the Bible says was true of us. Ekthros, hatred. It meant to be antagonistic to someone. Actually seek to injure or overthrow someone. To be an enemy. It's interesting, the scripture often uses the same word ekthros as a noun form, and and it's translated as adversary, and we know that that in the New Testament is used to describe Satan. Want to catch your breath a little bit about where you were without Christ? Now as a believer, you know how much Satan hates you, don't you? You know the deep hatred he has against you. The Bible says you had a a like hatred toward God when you were lost. The scripture says in Ephesians 2, we live under the power, the prince of the power of the air. We're children of darkness without Jesus Christ. Like father, like son. That's how much our hatred for God could have expressed itself. It was all there. Notice he says, you were hostile and you were hateful toward God and you were hateful in your mind. This is interesting. Rebellion against God begins in our minds. That's where the fall began. Satan began to fool with the reasoning of Adam and Eve and to deceive them. And the world is deceived today in its intellect. The mind contains the intellect, the moral understanding, the way of thinking. Dianoia is the Greek word. 
And in Ephesians 4.18, Paul uses it again when he says the whole world, Ephesians 4.18, is darkened in its understanding. They being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Sin is not just a moral issue where we get involved in sensual things. Sin is fundamentally a decision and a mindset that has rebelled against God, that has decided to refuse his glory in our world, and that is completely wrapped up in a hostility and a hatred toward him. It's a hostility wrapped around the belief that I know how to run my life and I know how to look at this world without God. Wow. People look at what's happening in American society today and they see just some incredibly mindless or, what can we say, indescribable methods of thinking that are moving through some of our society in many dimensions. And we say, what's happened to our world? And I would say to you, nothing's happened to our world. Our world simply expressing itself more deeply and clearly. This is the hostile mind toward the things of God, toward the realities of how God says things are. It's just becoming more and more itself. It's poking its way through the, the final layer of what had previously been a somewhat biblically directed cultural frame. But you see, we were all like that. Think back to when you didn't know the Lord. If you came to know the, know the Lord uh, at a more grown-up time in your life, there was a time when all of us who are now Christians who have met the Lord, we were alienated from God. We didn't have any use for God. I know I didn't. We didn't take him into our reckoning. We didn't consider him important. We started and ended each day without a thought of him. Remember those days? I do. We went about our own plans, lived for our own, our own ambitions, and we did what we felt like doing, never giving a thought to God. We didn't want anything to do with him. Practical atheism. You remember how that felt, don't you? We weren't open to him in any degree, any degree whatsoever. We were enemies of God, and as a result, we expressed that enmity. And Paul says here, it begins with an alienated mind that grows hostile in attitude. And finally, look at the third one. It's fully amplified because, because we're alienated and hostile, we do evil deeds before we know the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the third part of the trifecta of trouble. Evil deeds. You say, wow, that's a pretty heavy moral statement that I before Christ finding Christ I was an evil person and I committed evil deeds I really don't think I was that bad well that's because you're you were using your bent moral compass to define bad and the Bible says that every way you look at life you look at it in a way that makes you look good that's what Romans 1 says but you are not to be judged in terms of whether you're good or evil based on your self-serving little tipped moral compass. No, you stand or fall before the only true one, and that's God and his moral compass. He's the north star of good and evil. And he rules the universe. And we stand or fall based on what good or evil look like in his sight. We were engaged in evil deeds, and the Greek here is very profound. 
It says we were literally in evil. We were enshrouded by it. And the language is in a tense that says we were continually in evil. When you were born, you were born in sin. You wasted little time in living that out. And before Christ, you were amplifying that lifestyle. Whether you were a a white picket fence guy next door with a fairly together life who happened to pass by church a couple times a year, or you were part of the Mongols' uh, motorcycle gang that was terrorizing a bar downtown. The same thing is true of both. Because in God's eyes, you were not living according to his wonderful standard and you weren't living for his glory. The Greek text here says you were in evil. One author said this, evil was the air we inhaled and breathed out. Evil was the medium in which we conducted our life and work. All of our thoughts, all of our words, and all of our deeds were permeated, even marinated, as it were, in the elixir of evil, end quote. Wow. You say, are you sure about, I mean, I mean, I look at my, I'm a Christian now, okay, I'm, I'm, but I'm looking at my good moral friends. I'm looking at the, 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 the woman down a few desks from me who, who uh, has got that poster on, on the inside of her cube that, that says, practice random acts of kindness. And you know what? She does. She's one of the kindest people I've met in a long time. She's kinder than some Christians I know. Are you saying that she's living in evil? Well, let me tell you. The Bible says that God determines what good and evil is. The ultimate good in the universe is to glorify God. That's the way the universe was designed. God is perfectly good, and whatever is done for his glory is perfectly good. According to his standard, whatever is not done for his glory is not good. Why? Because the center of that goodness has shifted. That that friend doing good moral deeds... They're still fundamentally evil and doing evil because you see the best of good deeds that are not done to the glory of God fall short of the standard of God. And ultimately, listen to this, they're done for yourself. You have to ponder that to really understand it. But if a person lives their life for themselves, by themselves, even if they they populate it with good deeds toward others, fundamentally the only ultimate reason they even do that, if you really get down into all the layers of motivation and meaning, is ultimately for themselves. Because that's how they define a good life and that's how they feel good about who they are. And trust me, You can take the nicest person in your office place and you put them into a point of extremity where they have to decide between themselves and the good of another. You make the consequences deep enough. We'll all decide for ourselves. The scripture says we are all living in the depth of that sin. Even the best of deeds that are not done to the glory of God. You know what that's really called? Original sin. That's how Satan started this whole thing. He came to Eve in the garden and he said, yeah, this relationship with God, there's a lot of good things about it, but it could be gooder. He really could. In fact, he's not as good as you think he is. You need to step up and step out for yourself. And when you do, he said, your eyes will be opened and you'll understand good and evil. And here's the kicker. And you shall be like who? 
God. Who is a person, no matter how good they are, that's decided that they are the center of their universe and they're denying God? Whose place have they taken? God's. This is the essence of human sin. Now, alienated, hostile in mind, living in evil deeds no matter how good we look. Are you sensing the weight of that right now? That's what he wanted them to, to taste. If you're sensing the weight of that right now, I would say good. Good. Because that's what a person needs to sense to be saved. That's the depth of conviction the Holy Spirit must bring. And our gospel message must bear for a person to be saved. If there's not a sense of the weight of sin and the need of repentance in the gospel message you're hearing, let me tell you right now, you're hearing what I would call a sterile gospel. We need to understand and taste the sting of sin as Paul puts it in glinting steel in this passage. For reconciliation to God begins with repentance to God. Don't forget that. I'm going to say something right now that is really going to shock some of you. I don't think lost people need a personal relationship with God. You may be absolutely... I don't think lost people need a personal relationship with God. I think they need personal reconciliation with God. Then they can have a personal relationship. But you know where I'm going here. I've said it many times. Where do we so often start in our therapy-driven, user-friendly, caring cultivation of the gospel? We miss the sting of the need for reconciliation, and we run right to personal relationship. That's a sterile gospel. You can think about the consequences of that on your own. Now, in Paul's case, with the Colossians, he said, This is not true of you. You once were alienated, hostile, and living in evil, but you have now been reconciled. Okay, so the weight of the message so far has been fairly intense. (laughs) Paul now moves into some of the the depth and the comfort, and we'll go through the last three here. But this bears knowing. There has to be some some sharp steel in our understanding of the nature of man. Believers are ignoring this today in droves. Don't preach a sterile gospel. Secondly, he says, because you've been reconciled, he reminded them in the next phrase, verse 22, that all of this was accomplished by the death of Jesus. It's a reminder that no one can reconcile themselves to God. You can't do it. And he told this to the Colossians because they were being influenced by false teachers who were telling them exactly the opposite. The only way for you to find this virtually unknowable God is to get your life so tuned in with good deeds and with the laws that we're laying down on your life that you make yourself acceptable to this virtually unknowable God. They had them climbing up the ladder of the law and of works 
And, and you have to reconcile yourself to God. And Paul writes to these believers and say, say, says, be done with that. You have been reconciled and Jesus did it all. He has now reconciled you. you, you you're reconciled. It's a completed fact. As a Christian, you're fully reconciled to God. You're at peace with God. And he did it through the body of his flesh by his death. We were alienated and hostile to God, but God has, has done it. Can anybody say hallelujah? I'm telling you that this was the great point of freedom for Christians. Remember last week I talked about the fact that, that outside of Christ we were standing in defiance against God with our back toward him. He was in grief over our sin, but God came turning and God offered the cross of his son. That's verses 1 to 19 and 20 the wonderful peace offering of reconciliation. We took it, but it was all wrapped up in the cross work of Jesus Christ. Now he says, notice two important things about the cross work of Jesus. First of all, he was recon- you were reconciled in his body of flesh. Why did he include that? Because the Colossians were fighting false teachers who said that the spirit is good, but all flesh, all physical reality, particularly the human body is evil. And God would never inhabit a human body. He's perfect and good. He would never inhabit a human body. Therefore, this Jesus you've been told about really wasn't the God-man. He was a spirit being who appeared physically at times, but was not fully man. Therefore, he couldn't have died fully on the cross. By the way, if that sounds familiar, it's because it's being taught out there by many different groups today. Oh, Paul says, no, it's a certainty that he came in a body of flesh. You see, why did Jesus have to be there physically on the cross? Jesus had to be personally and physically human to take your personal and physical place. And he did it perfectly. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 declares, For God has done what the law, your efforts to be reconciled, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He defeated sin that kept you separated from God. But Jesus Christ had to come in the flesh. John said in 1 John, anybody that says that they're a Christian, but they don't believe that Jesus is fully God and that he didn't, they didn't come in the... He, he, they believe he didn't come as a, as a man in, in the flesh. They're not, they're not his. It's that critical. Secondly, he says, he came in a body of flesh and he died on that cross. Jesus had to fully die, both as a sacrifice, according to the Old Testament prophecies and the requirement of God the Father, and a substitute for you. What was he there as a substitute for? To take all the wrath that God had stored up for your hostile and alienated and evil life and to pour it instead on his perfect and beautiful son. That is what we call substitutionary atonement. Jesus atoned. He paid the price. He took the wrath for you substitutionarily in your place and in my place. That is the core of Christianity. And beloved, that's being attacked in many Christian places in the West today. Why is it attacked? Because people don't want to admit how deeply sinful people are. It goes back to the garden. But Paul says, make no mistake, this is what Jesus did for you. And in the words of one author, uh, Richard Bodie, I read this week, he simply drained the cup of God's wrath bone dry, Jesus did, leaving not a drop for us to drink. Amen. He's telling these believers, oh, you're reconciled. And you're fully reconciled because of what God did. You couldn't do it. 
But he did, verse 22. Amen. Let's go on. Thirdly, he teaches them that redemption, pardon me, reconciliation was accomplished not only by the death of Jesus, but it means we are now holy, blameless, and above reproach in God's eyes. You're saying, wow, the news is getting better. I'm telling you, the reconciliation news is always good. You got to taste the sting in the beginning. But the sweetness of what it means is off the charts. He says, now that Jesus has come in the flesh and died for you and atoned for you and taken the wrath, it's all upside. You are now holy, blameless, and above reproach in God's eyes. God had a wonderful idea. He didn't just change your legal status from enemy to friend. There's more. He changed you from an enemy to someone who's now holy and blameless in his eyes. He changed who you are. He did it by sending the Holy Spirit to give you a new nature, to create a, a, a newness of life within you so that you now love him and you want to walk with him and please him. But he also changed your standing in his eyes. You now are holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You say, that's really good. Eventually, I know that's what I'm going to look like in heaven. This is true. But Theologians that look, at, that look at this passage believe this also doesn't talk about the eventual in heaven. It talks about the actual for the believer now. What am I saying? What Jesus accomplished on that cross for you and you accepted when you found Jesus makes you now, as God gazes at you, holy and blameless and above reproach. Some people call this positionally true. I call it deeply true, <laughs> wonderfully true. It says, when God looks at you before him, he sees you now as you're going to be, the Greek word there in, in, in the ESV that, that says before him is, is actually in many translations in his sight, and that's more close to the Greek. Dr. Wiest in his uh, analysis of this says the Greek word means to look down upon with a penetrating gaze. That's how God looks at us because he's holy. And he can only look on the holy now that you're in Christ, he sees you as holy. You say, how can that be? Well, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that in some marvelous way, when you came to Christ, you're now in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Wow. In some marvelous way, you who were an enemy, you who were an adversary, you who live soaked in evil, now through the wonderful work of the cross of Christ, you've been placed into God's Son, and He will not only perfect you and make you fully absent of sin when you get to heaven, right now as He sees you in relationship, you're fully reconciled to Him. He doesn't see you in your sin, He sees you in His Son. This is so powerful. For those struggling with condemnation as Christians who, over the fact that they've fallen in sin, this is powerful. For those struggling as Christians over the fact that there are stretches in their Christian life where they backslid and they struggled and they're living in guilt today, this is powerful. God understands that. He wants to draw you out of that, but in a sense, he doesn't see it. He sees you in his son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made his son who knew no, knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in him. 
Oh my goodness. I, maybe you guys don't struggle with sin a lot as Christians. You know, you're looking at me saying, well, it's nice for you. I guess you need that. What comfort. What comfort. I know my sin. The Holy Spirit reveals it to me all the time. When he does, I also battle the voice of the devil who accuses me day and night before the throne of God, but also, it seems, day and night, day and night into the ear of Joe. And I'll often, often open my Bible and I'll say, you know, devil, you're right about everything. And in fact, there's a few things you've missed. But read that. Read 1 Corinthians 1.30. And then go read 2 Corinthians 5.21. And you take that back to the throne of my God and come back and tell me what he says. The devil never comes back. You say, how in the world can that really? I don't understand. Look at it this way. What do we call this? We call it the Word of God, but for generations, Christians have also called it the Holy Bible because it's perfect. The way God wrote it and inspired it, it's perfect, right? This could represent me. It's got my name written across it in black letters because I battle often with sin and I'm never fully free from it in my life as a believer. It's all around me. It defines me sometimes. Ugly. Unrighteous. That's how I look. Now how do I look? Now, how do I look? Holy. I'm in Christ. In the eyes of the great judge of the universe, <laughs> I'm as holy and righteous in his eyes as his own son. Wow. Amen and amen. This is reconciliation. This is the beauty of it. Here's the last two. <laughs> Go back to the passage. Fourthly, Paul says, reconciliation is the sure possession of the steadfast believer. He says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, God will present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. On first glance, some people would say, <laughs> I knew there was a catch. I have to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, to which I would say, yes. Don't you want to? If you're a believer, if you've really been transferred into the kingdom of God, if you've received that Wonderful spiritual rebirth. If, if the new man and the new mind are now part of you, if you're a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, won't you want to continue in the faith, stable and fast at, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel? Yeah, you will. 
People look at this and they misread it. And of course, part of it's just the, the weight of the language, but part of it's a legalistic past or a skeptical present. And the, this is not, it's not a new condition that he's adding on at the end. It's a great comfort. <laughs> you see, the, the word if here, and forgive me, I'm going to get a little technical as we close here, but I mean, sometimes I'm, Well, I know God sovereignly chose the time and the place to write the New Testament, and he wrote it in the most detailed and and nuanced and expressive language I think it's ever been produced, Koine Greek, the language of the time of Christ and the time of the apostles. And in the the Greek language of this text, the the word if there in, in Greek, there's three different ways it could be structured. There's a third class condition they call it, which is a if with doubt in it, you could translate it. If you continue, and I'm not really sure you will, I don't know. There's a second class condition, which is the contrary to fact condition. They would use this in arguments. If you do this, but I know you won't. <laughs> it's the condition of, well, it's if with attitude, you know. If you did it, but I know you won't. I know you don't. That's the second class condition. Then there's the first class condition. It was if with the assumption and the belief that you will. It could be translated since or if and I know you will. It was if with certainty. It was a marvelous way to structure it. Guess which one it is. It's the third of these. He says... If indeed you continue in the faith and you could put a parenthesis and I know you will. You see, it's a, it's a comfort. Paul's not casting doubt on their salvation. Dr. Weiss, the Greek, Greek translator says, it assumes that they will continue with the faith. Paul is saying, I'm assuming you'll continue. I know you will. Peter O'Brien, the Greek translator says, you could read it this way. If you stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure you will. Another one says, if you continue in the faith, which you will assuredly do. He's talking there to Christians and he's saying, since you're Christians, I have no doubt you'll live out your reconciliation and your new identity and you will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. He's not casting doubt. He's bringing them comfort. It's another way of stating that continuing is the proof of reality. True Christians, truly reconciled, will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Doesn't mean that we won't stumble in sin. Doesn't mean we won't have periods of time, maybe long stretches of time, where we backslide. Doesn't even mean there might be periods of time where you struggle with intellectual battle and doubts over your faith. It means in the midst of and in spite of these things, if you're his, you continue in the faith. Over the long stretch, stable and steadfast. And in the end, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Old preacher that I Heard in seminary a few times, read a lot of his books. In fact, there's a couple people in our church here at least that were part of his church. Ray Stedman, back in Northern California, wonderful expositor. He preached a message on this called The Great Mystery. Pastor Stedman put it this way about this verse. It's continuing that is the proof of reality. 
it is continuing that is the proof of reality. Many people start out the Christian life filled with joy because they have found a new sensation and experience, but it doesn't last. Somewhere along the line, the experience fades. Finally, they set it all aside and go back to the way they once were. Well, that is a sign there was never real faith at the beginning. You see, it is continuance that proves reality. Doesn't mean that faith cannot waver and wobble at times in the life of a Christian. It does with all of us. Sometimes faith grows dim, but true faith never ceases, he preached. This should actually greatly comfort us. We as true believers never give up the realization that God has changed us. There's a new attitude a new life imparted, and that is, the that is the sign that we cannot give up being a Christian. Then he says this, I received a phone call in my pastoral study from a young man one day. The young man said, I'm going to quit being a Christian. It's too hard. I don't want to pay the price. Pastor Stedman thought for a moment and said to the young man, I think that's what you ought to do. There was a long silence for a moment on the other end of the line. And then the young man said, you know I can't do that. <laughs> Pastor Stedman says, of course I knew he couldn't do it. And he didn't do it for it is continuing that is the proof of reality. Lastly, he reminds us as we close, this is a great gift, isn't it? The last reality is the, the reconciliation is the great message of every believer. It's not just a great reality for every believer. It's a message we take to the world. He says, this has been proclaimed in all creation, this wonderful gospel of, of reconciliation, all creation under heaven. It's spreading everywhere, and, and believers are taking it everywhere. And I, Paul, became a minister of it. And by implication, he's saying, you guys are too. He says it in 2 Corinthians 5 even more clearly. God has now given us the ministry of reconciliation as if God were appealing through us. We are ambassadors for Christ. And so the best news in the world bears the best telling, doesn't it? Reconciliation. We've been through some deep water theologically in the last two weeks. But isn't there wonder here? Isn't it greatly comforting? It's touched believing hearts for 2,000 years. And having illustrated with a pastor, I'll close, with a pastor I've admired, Horatius Bonar, <laughs> If you're going to be a preacher, you might as well be named Horatius. That's all. He was a Scottish pastor and a hymn writer. Marvelous man of God. He looked at this passage and he summed it up this way. Had it not been for Christ's dying, grace and guilt could, have not, could not have looked each other in the face. <laughs> wow. God and the sinner could not have come together. Righteousness would have forbidden reconciliation, and righteousness, we know, is as divine and real a thing as love. People say, God is, is love. He must embrace all people regardless of their sin, regardless of their past. 
But God is not one-shaded. God is also just and holy. And even in your broken standards, you know that there needs to be justice. God is fully loving, but also fully holy. And His holiness required reconciliation, didn't it? Dr. Bonar goes on. Without this exception of reconciliation, it would not have been right for God to receive the sinner, nor safe for the sinner to come. But now mercy and truth have met together. He was quoting Psalm 85, 10, 11. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness of peace and peace have kissed each other. <laughs> How could a righteous God be at peace with me? They came and kissed each other at the foot of the cross. That's how. He said, now, he said, now mercy and truth have met together. Now grace is righteousness and righteousness is grace. God can be fully God. He can be perfectly righteous, but still meet us in grace through his son's sacrifice. This satisfies the sinner's conscience by showing him righteous love for the unrighteous and unlovable. It tells him too that the reconciliation brought about in this way shall never be disturbed either in this life or that which is to come. It is righteous reconciliation and it'll stand every test as well as last throughout eternity. The peace of conscience thus secured will be trial-proof, sickness-proof, deathbed-proof, judgment-proof. Amen, Pastor, and amen.